This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So, let's get started. Keeping in the same vein as our most recent episode involving fratricide, the killing of one sibling at the hands of another, I wanted to share a bonus about a missing person story out of Oakland, California, that I've found intriguing and frustrating. 33-year-old Alicia Amanda Stokes, who went by the name Mandy, had found herself in a pretty good and satisfying place in life as 2007 was winding to an end. She had moved to California from South Carolina in 2005 to attend college and was a graduate student with a focus on psychology. She had aspirations of becoming a therapist. She was in a fulfilling relationship. She was living comfortably in her Oakland apartment that she shared with her brother, and she had quickly become acclimated to her new surroundings, as she was described as having a very outgoing and vibrant personality. And because she was a psych major, it was easy to get into conversations with Mandy because she was so bright and insightful. Determined to learn all she could about the human mind, she delved into her studies full of enthusiasm and a desire to learn. She would work or volunteer at hospitals. She would visit psychiatric wards and try to visit with and talk to some of the patients if possible. She took on challenges whenever the opportunity presented itself, and she did so with a tremendous amount of drive and passion. From the outside looking in, It looked as though life was good. Mandy was actively chasing her dreams. She was the oldest girl of a pretty big family consisting of five boys and three girls. Mandy's interest in psychology stemmed from her own father's experiences, William Stokes. He was a Vietnam War veteran, and once he finished his tour, he struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mandy was always interested in knowing and learning about PTSD. She researched it with a desire to have a deeper understanding as to what her father had experienced and what it meant for him having to live with it. Her family would explain that William kept a lot of what was going on inside his head to himself. Things stemming from his experiences in war, all of those demons that he carried with him, and Mandy was so wanting to get inside his head. She connected with him on a more cerebral level because she felt she was so similar to him in so many ways, 
and they were exceptionally close. And Mandy was close with her mother too, who was thrilled when Mandy finally came along after a succession of boys. Cute as a button, yet stubborn as a bull. But when Mandy turned 30, she decided to make a big change in life. A childhood friend of hers, Melinda, had moved all the way across the country to California. So in 2005, Mandy decided to join her. They had been inseparable as children. Their moms were best friends. Their dads worked together. Their families went to the same church. So Mandy moving out to California to join Melinda was perfect for both of them, since Melinda had come out west on her own not too long before Mandy decided to do the same. With Mandy in her psychology program and Melinda in her acupuncture program, they both kept pretty intense schedules. Then less than two years later, in the spring of 2007, Mandy's younger brother Aaron decided to join her in California. And of course, Mandy was going to do everything that she could to help her little brother adjust to life on the West Coast. She had asked Melinda if he could stay with them on the sofa, but Melinda was a little apprehensive about it because she knew Aaron had been struggling with a drug addiction for quite some time. And Mandy, wanting to help, wanting to believe in him, hoping for him to get better, vouched for him. Yeah, no, he's clean and sober, she promised. So he moved onto their couch, and this arrangement lasted for about three months. At that point, Mandy and Aaron decided to move into their own place. I wish I knew why, for certain, they decided to move, Being as close as Melinda had described her relationship with Mandy had been, as well as with her family through the years, but maybe the place was too small for the three of them. Maybe it wasn't really working out. But you know, I've had roommates where we've let friends crash on our sofa, and it really isn't all that big of a deal, especially when you're all busy working and going to school. You're barely home anyway, but... I can't help but wonder what the catalyst for Mandy deciding everyone would be better off if she and Aaron moved out instead of asking him to go and try and find another place on his own. I suppose it could have been a strong obligation to her brother rather than stay in the comfortable arrangement with Melinda. Maybe Mandy felt Melinda would be fine on her own, but her brother, not so much, and she really wanted to help see him through. That would be my best guess. Maybe Mandy felt like Aaron was a burden or a distraction on Melinda and really didn't want things to continue that way, so she did what she felt was the best thing for all three of them. Mandy strikes me as a very selfless and giving person, someone who would not have a problem putting others before herself. So yeah, I'd say she really wanted to be there for her brother. As the summer progressed, Melinda and Mandy really had a hard time connecting with one another. They barely saw each other, and this was really not the way things were for the friends. Eventually, the girls found a chance to talk, and they were going to make sure that they would make a conscious effort to reconnect and not allow time and space to come between them like that anymore. The summer was coming to an end, and the fall semester was about to begin, but Mandy... Well, she decided to take some time off school. And it's been said that part of the reason for that 
is because she had recently gotten into a relationship with a man named John, who she met while she was on vacation in Las Vegas. But for the time being, the relationship was long distance because he happened to live in New York. So from the end of summer and into the fall of 2007, Mandy had taken time off of work, and I believe she had gotten a job as a waitress at a bar, but I will expand on that more in a little bit. But she did not enroll for the fall semester because she had taken at least a couple of trips to New York to spend time with John, and that seemed to be her new priority. Not only was her relationship with John going really well at this time, she was also falling in love with New York too. So she decided that she was going to make the leap and leave California and join John in New York. She had even notified her landlord of her intentions of moving out. By all accounts, according to her family, Mandy's life was headed in a pretty positive direction, at least in some respects. Mandy had flown back to Oakland from New York, arriving on Wednesday, November 20th, 2007, the day before Thanksgiving. She even started packing up some of her things as she was getting ready to make that move to the East Coast. But it seems that her brother Aaron was having a difficult time with the imminent changes. I imagine the whole thing was stressful, especially if he depended on Mandy. If he wasn't going to be able to find a place if he could afford it, and as we mentioned earlier, he did have a history of substance abuse. But my understanding is that the drug use was likely ongoing, and it is also my understanding that Mandy too had fallen into drug use and excessive drinking, but we will talk about that also later on in our story. So as Aaron continued to struggle with Mandy's plans to leave California, she decided to give mom a call, and mom's name is Deborah, by the way. She was living in Georgia at this time. Mandy shared her concerns about Aaron with her and wondered if maybe she could call him and talk to him, that maybe he needed some support and it might help if she could reach out to him. Deborah did try to call, and she talked to him briefly, but he really didn't want to stay on the phone for very long. Why he ended the conversation so abruptly isn't clear. Mom just recalled that the phone call was brief. The next day, on Sunday, November 25th, 2007, it is known that both Aaron and Mandy left the apartment early together and headed over to an ATM and possibly withdrew some money. When they arrived back at their apartment complex, they were standing on the porch outside their front door having a discussion and it had something to do with money. And there were witnesses who either heard or saw this interaction between the two take place. The tone of the discussion began to escalate into a full-blown argument. Aaron later told his mom that they did indeed argue on their front porch and that the argument involved money and family and that Mandy was upset at him, but he kind of downplayed it a little bit. What exactly happened? There are a few different versions. Aaron did not indicate that the argument was all that intense or serious, but some of the witnesses at the apartment felt as though it was somewhat of an aggressive fight, 
and some had even reported seeing Aaron possibly blocking Mandy from entering into the home, and she kind of pulled a fake out, side to side kind of a move, and managed to get around him and made her way through the front door, and he followed quickly behind her. I've also heard that the argument involved Aaron supposedly having stolen some checks from Mandy while she was away in New York and writing them out to himself, forging her signature and cashing them. And maybe they went to the ATM and that's when she discovered her balance in her account was lower than she expected it to be. And I will also talk more about this check thing later on too. But the account of what happened next can only be provided by Aaron. He said that following the argument with Mandy, he went inside and took a shower. While he was in there, Mandy knocked on the bathroom door to tell him that she was leaving for a while to take care of a few errands. She grabbed her phone, her car keys, her wallet, and she left. Whatever errands she was headed to take care of, where she was planning on going, and who she may have had plans to go and meet could never be ascertained because Mandy would never be seen again. The following day, on Monday, November 26th, Deborah, back in Georgia, received a call, this time from her son Aaron. He informed her that Mandy failed to come home, that he had not seen her since she left the previous morning when she went to run errands. Now, when the word spread amongst Mandy's family and friends that she didn't come home Sunday night or Monday morning, they weren't initially too worried because it wasn't completely out of character for Mandy to take impromptu road trips in her car, that she'd probably be back in a day or two. Maybe she was invited to go someplace with a friend. That sounds like Mandy. According to Aaron, she said she was only going to run a few errands. Would she have told him if she had other plans? Maybe under normal circumstances, perhaps she would have, but they had just gotten into a fight. So the thought is maybe she just needed some space between herself and Aaron. That's what her friend Melinda was thinking. She'll come back. She always does. Don't worry about it. But her mom, Deborah, she is not feeling as confident as everyone else, which is normal. She tried calling Mandy all day that day on Monday, and she was never able to get through to her. She left numerous voicemails, and none of them were ever returned. But when Mandy left the apartment, it wasn't exactly the last time she was actually heard from. You see, once she started driving, she called John back in New York to tell him about the argument that she had just had with Aaron. So whatever happened to Mandy happened after she left the apartment with her car. She had her phone. So it was not a case where the brother and sister fought. They went back into the apartment and something went awry in there. Because she left, John talked to her. It's been confirmed. He was certain that she was driving and she was driving alone. They were on the phone. But here's the thing about that. They never officially ended their phone call. They were talking and the call suddenly dropped mid-conversation. And there doesn't seem to be any indication that John and Mandy were ever able to reconnect once that call was lost. 
He said he tried a few times to call back and never got a hold of her again. And that is the last known communication from Mandy to this day, going on 12 years this November. So after an entire day passed with Deborah not being able to get in touch with Mandy, she called Aaron back at the apartment and told him she's worried and they needed to contact the police and please report her missing so they can get the ball rolling on trying to track her down. And this is where Aaron starts to become a little bit dodgy. By Tuesday, November 27th, Mandy had still not been seen or heard from. And when Deborah spoke to Aaron again, he had yet to file the missing persons report that she had asked him to file the day before. Now, if this was my kid, I'd be pissed off. But in the interviews that I've seen and heard from Deborah, she was very calm and soft-spoken about the whole thing and maintained her composure. But to me... It feels like sadness and fear and exasperation was taking over. Like the energy to get worked up about what Aaron is or isn't doing simply isn't there. But whatever the case, Aaron was not taking any kind of proactive measures towards getting law enforcement on the case. So when mom was like, call and file a report and he hems and haws about this and that, that he didn't have the right phone number, that he thought he called the wrong place, They told him that he had to wait 24 hours, blah, blah, blah. He's just not displaying the kinds of urgency to find Mandy that one might expect from a brother. There is speculation as to why he was behaving this way, and we'll circle back to that as well. But from that point forward, Deborah took over and called the police herself to report Mandy missing. When Tuesday came and she still hadn't heard from Mandy, Deborah was certain something was terribly wrong. When the Oakland Police Department received Deborah's report, they immediately began their investigation. They first sent an officer to the apartment where she and Aaron lived. They banged on the door, but Aaron refused to allow the officers inside. And this really upset mom. But she knew that her son had a history of drug abuse. And he probably didn't want to let police officers in to search the apartment because he might have some illegal drugs or paraphernalia inside. At least that's what her speculation is. Could he be hiding more than that? Perhaps evidence of foul play? There does not seem to be any indication or witnesses who ever said that they saw Mandy return to the apartment. So fearing police might discover drugs and such is probably why he refused to allow them in and they didn't have a warrant. They probably didn't think they needed one. They really have no probable cause to obtain one. And Aaron not letting them in is really suspicious considering his sister is missing and clues to where she may have gone could very likely be found in the last place she was known to be. But he wouldn't budge. He didn't let them in. And from across the country, there was little Deborah could do for the time being. She was struggling to figure out a way to get out to California. And with her son's uncooperativeness, it was only adding to her frustration. And it didn't take long for Deborah's frustration to turn into sheer panic. And she needed to do something to try and find Mandy from Georgia. 
All she knew was Mandy got into her car and drove somewhere, so that's where she started. Mandy's car. She somehow needed to find the license plate number, and you know it seems like a simple thing, but I mean, where in your house would that information be? Probably nowhere unless Mandy owned the car outright and the pink slip was filed somewhere, and then she's got to try to get her unhelpful son to look for it. But if Mandy had financed the car, there might not be any plate information anywhere. It would all be with the car. So that's got to be exasperating, trying to look for something so small, but so vital at the same time. After pretty much begging Mandy's auto insurance carrier, which was located in North Carolina, Deborah was able to get the plate information from them, though I can imagine, especially today, it would be really hard to get anyone to give you that sort of information over the phone, even if you are a panicked mom looking for your missing daughter. I don't think they'd be allowed to unless Deborah went through the right channels. But she got it, so she got that information relayed to the Oakland Police Department so that they would be able to run it through their systems to see if anything dinged on their search. And they got a hit. About three hours prior to Deborah calling that detective on Mandy's case, her car had just been towed and was sitting in the police impound yard. According to the charlieproject.org, Mandy's vehicle was locked. It was abandoned next to a deep ravine on the 5,000 block of Park Boulevard near the intersection of Leemart Boulevard. Investigators, when they arrived at the impound yard, went in treating Mandy's car as a potential crime scene. The first place they looked was the trunk to check and see if her body was hidden in there. It was not. Next, inside the glove box, crime scene technicians discovered Mandy's wallet, which contained her identification, her MP3 player, and her cell phone. I saw another report that said her keys were inside too, but it is not specified if the keys were her car keys or if they were her house keys. And I'm not sure if it's possible to lock the keys inside the car because, as I said, it was locked. It was a 2001 black Honda Civic. So it could be possible to manually lock the door and leave the keys inside. And Mandy's car battery was dead. And it was towed because it was obstructing traffic. So it has you wondering, how and when did it end up there like that? Nobody knows. But it's very perplexing. She was last seen on Sunday, right? But her car was not towed until Tuesday because it was blocking traffic. And I don't think it would be very likely that her car would have been parked like that for that many days without somebody calling it in to have it removed, especially if it was a hazard. But then the battery was dead. If the car was functioning and the battery ended up dying before it was discovered, it must have taken some time for it to die depending on what caused it to die. So then I wonder, maybe the car was parked there for a while without anyone reporting it, thinking that the owner would come back for it. Who knows? But the family would later on get some information as to possibly when the car was abandoned there. Now, I looked at satellite images of the intersection where her car was found, 
And it looks like it could be a pretty busy street, but it also looks like there are lots of houses and trees, and the roads look windy, and there's a school, there's that ravine, and the map says that it's a creek, but it looks dried up and filled up with trees and some walking trails. So we can assume that traffic is going to be heavy, especially at the beginning of school and after school as well. But what's traffic like during non-peak times? I'm not completely sure, but I have heard reports that the road Mandy's car was found on was relatively well-traveled. So it has us wondering how did a car become parked in a way that it blocked traffic like that? And how was it that the battery died? And why were her things in the glove box? It does not sound like a situation that Mandy would have been the one to have left the car there, obstructing traffic, walking away from it, and not taking her phone, wallet, or keys. I don't think she would have been the one to have abandoned it there in that manner. It kind of feels like someone else did it, and they did it kind of hastily. But that just leaves many more questions, including who did it and why. And as far as any potential evidence found in the car, fingerprints, fibers, DNA, at this point, they didn't seem to find anything on this initial search, but they would come back to the car later on. So finding the car at this point yielded no clues to indicate what happened to Mandy. The police called Deborah back and told her that they found the car, that they found her personal effects in the glove box, but there was no sign or indication of what may have happened. Mandy's family and investigators were also very concerned about the location where Mandy's car was found because, like I had said earlier, they wondered why, if it was Mandy who left it there, why would she leave it in a place where it was blocking traffic and causing a hazard? According to law enforcement, it was in a merge lane, and they said that there was plenty of space to park the car off to the side of the road legally, but whoever left the car there didn't do that. The car was also parked next to a very deep ravine with a steep drop-off and a bridge that crosses over it. So the family and investigators started thinking that maybe she stopped there with the possibility that she was contemplating suicide by jumping from the bridge. Now a thorough search of the area was conducted and there was no indication that Mandy jumped. But I thought about this and I was thinking maybe, just maybe, if Mandy was the one who left the car there, if she stopped at that place to contemplate suicide, maybe when she parked the car there, it wasn't very trafficy because it was a Sunday. Maybe she got out and paced around and spent some time thinking, and then maybe she changed her mind. But when she tried to get back in her car and drive off, the battery had died. And that could have triggered her to become scared or upset and maybe she walked away from the car, leaving all of her things behind. And whatever happened to her happened someplace else. We just don't know where or how. Law enforcement has not ruled out the possibility that Mandy took her own life. But they remain skeptical because they tend to go with the working theory that it's really hard to hide your own body if you commit suicide. But as I said, nothing has been conclusively ruled out whether it be suicide, or if she met with foul play, 
Investigators continue to follow whatever leads come their way. And dreamers, one of the things I appreciate about Mandy's case and her family's involvement is that they've always been very candid about the circumstances going on at the time that she disappeared and what was happening in her life. It really gives those who are searching for her some insight into things. It gives investigators a direction to go. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. You know, the investigation discovery show disappeared. It was one of my favorite shows. Well, in many cases, so much information is left out about the missing person being featured. Sometimes things the family doesn't want to share because it might not be the most flattering details about their loved one. But it also can be misleading. Take Maura Murray's episode of Disappeared. The family never mentioned anything about the shoplifting or the identity theft or the binge drinking. I can't exactly remember if they mentioned that Maura had a Coke bottle with booze in it at the time she crashed her car in the White Mountains. But either way, I remember her dad, Fred, downplaying everything, convinced that she was abducted and that the bus driver who encountered her after the crash had been a suspect for quite some time as well when all he really wanted to do was help. But if the family had been more forthcoming with what was really going on with Mora, that she had had some troubles at West Point, that she had gotten in more trouble at UMass, that she might have been struggling with depression and alcoholism, and that it was likely she was finding out that her boyfriend was cheating on her, though I've heard she was doing the same thing, but it still hurts nonetheless. And yeah, come to find years later that the boyfriend is shady too. Maybe all the time and energy wasted in the early days looking at potential suspects like the bus driver may not have happened, and attention could have been diverted elsewhere. A more immediate search could have been conducted up and down the highway. Clearly, Mora was drinking and driving, and she was already in so much legal trouble. It would be very easy to assume that she left on foot to avoid more charges, right? But I didn't learn any of that stuff until much later on when I started hearing her story on podcasts. And you know by now, the whole thing has been picked to death and nobody really wants to hear about this anymore, which is sad too. The point is, the investigation into Mora's disappearance could have gone in a different direction if investigators knew what they were dealing with. A person who may have been in the throes of a mental and emotional breakdown. A person who lied to everybody about where she was going. Who took all of her money out of the bank. Who bought a bunch of alcohol to bring along with her. And started driving a car that was about to crap out on her. Heading north to destination unknown, right? How much different would the trajectory of the investigation had been if her dad wasn't going to the media talking about her being taken away by a bad guy? He could have pleaded his case, told us that his baby girl was struggling with life, with school, with drinking, with a crappy boyfriend, and that he's afraid she's out there somewhere hiding or worse. We would have empathized with his plight. Well, I'd like to think we would have. But Fred Murray was pushing this bad guy snatched her theory for so long, and it didn't help. 
especially if the likelihood of self-harm was more evident in Maura's case. Which, I'm not saying that's what happened because I don't know. But in my opinion, Fred was part of the reason why the scope of the initial investigation into her disappearance was so narrow. He withheld important details in an attempt to protect Maura's reputation. And in doing so, he used his biggest platform available to him, which was the media, to mislead everybody. And that's what I mean when I say I appreciate Mandy's family's candor because they also had a disappeared episode featuring Mandy, but they laid it all out to bear. Her mother and one of her brothers, not Aaron, spoke openly about it, and they considered self-harm to not be out of the realm of possibilities. And I really have to acknowledge the courage that it took to be able to confront that publicly. You know, we've heard families say, There's no way they'd want to hurt themselves or hurt their families by taking their own life or even walking away from their families voluntarily. The two that immediately jump out at me are Stephen Kocher, who went missing in Henderson, Nevada, and Emma Filipoff from British Columbia, Canada. Oh, and also another one, Mason Smith from Utah. These are just a couple of examples of families who've spoken to the media who really don't seem to want to confront the truth about what happened to their children. I don't really want to get too sidetracked with these cases, but I tend to believe that all three of those that I just mentioned went missing on their own volition, and I've either seen or heard interviews with their respective parents, and it is my belief that all three of these missing people not only may have been struggling with depression or some sort of mental health issues, but I also think all three of them had a measure of resentment towards their parents, either their mothers, their fathers, or both. Maybe in the future I'll expand on it more when it comes to Stephen Kocher and Mason Smith. Emma Filipoff's story has been told a lot, even in a long-form podcast, so I don't think I need to get into that one. Well, I don't know if I necessarily need to get into any of them, but for Stephen and Mason, I'd like to. Mason, having gone missing, took on a bit more urgency, mainly because he was only 17. And there was much about his case that led to the strong belief that he ran away from home. And I think it was because he was frustrated and upset with his parents' discipline. Leading up to the time that he was last seen, his parents took away his phone, his laptop, and disconnected the internet. I want to say he liked gaming, but I can't quite remember I'd have to look into it again but his folks would get up at night to check and see what he was doing and if they caught him on his computer or whatever everything got confiscated and I think Mason just had enough that investigation has been going down some different paths recently so I do want to look more into it because the story has really stuck with me over the years I've always wondered about parenting styles and how they work and how the things we did or do affect our children and how to connect better so things like this can be learned from and prevented. And I'm not saying this punishment Mason's parents levied was all that serious, but that is basically what they were willing to share. Because it has me also wondering, what was so terrible at home that running away was the better option? Did he really leave because his parents took away his laptop and his phone? 
Or was there a bit more to the story that the family wanted to keep private? And how would those facts, if they shared them, would impact the investigation? And as far as Stephen Kocher's story is concerned, oh, that one makes me really sad too. And you've likely heard of his disappearance. It's been covered on several podcasts. But I remember getting the impression from the iterations of his story that he came from a tight-knit, well-to-do Mormon family. And the general consensus, based on the information Stephen's family provided, is that he met with foul play after he parked his car in some 55 and over living community in Henderson, Nevada. And the last that he was ever seen was walking away on that surveillance video on somebody's house. Now, I have a belief that Stephen's relationship with his parents was much more strained than we might have initially thought. That maybe Stephen wasn't as tight-knit with the rest of his family. Now, this is only my opinion, but I feel this way because of a couple of things. The recent mysterious long drives that Stephen was taking, the refusal to accept help from his parents, and the argument that he got into with his dad on the phone over his unpaid rent, where he ended up hanging up on his dad. And I really only look at things this way because of the strained relationship I have talked about having with my own mom. The way that Stephen was behaving, it feels familiar. It feels relatable, you know what I mean? So, you know, if you heard I went mysteriously missing and my mom comes to the media saying things like she would not be out of touch with her family, blah, blah, blah. You know, she'd be hiding the truth. So anyway, if Stephen's parents are telling the media foul play must be involved because Stephen wouldn't do this. He loved his family, yada, yada, yada then that's the direction the investigation is likely to go because that's what law enforcement has to work with. But then again, maybe the belief is if investigators think there's foul play, they might take his case more seriously as opposed to telling them things like Stephen was experiencing troubles in his life. We recently got into an argument on the phone, etc. Whatever the case, I just don't think it helps not disclosing important facts even if it's hurtful to want to acknowledge them. And I kind of have to say the same thing with Emma Filipov's mom. I remember having a short conversation with her on social media about the search for her daughter. And I came away from the whole thing kind of scratching my head. Because on one hand, her mom is out there on the streets of Victoria, British Columbia, searching and putting up flyers, that sort of thing. But at the same time, she was trying to push law enforcement to bring in cadaver dogs to search the areas where Emma was last seen. And I want to say for some reason that there was some hesitation or stalling when it came to bringing dogs in for some reason, which was upsetting mom. But mom was so convinced that Emma was wandering around lost and confused that she was out there constantly scanning the streets, hoping to spot Emma somewhere. But at the same time, pushing for canines. And I just remember thinking, if she's convinced Emma is alive, why so adamant about the dogs? And I thought maybe she knew deep down in her heart that there was a real possibility that Emma may have done harm to herself, but had a really difficult time wanting to say those words out loud, and I totally get it. And people were coming to help search, believing the narrative that mom was sharing with them, 
that Emma had a mental break and was wandering around town someplace. And it really is just my opinion that the resources that were made available in the search for Emma could have been better served if the family had been more forthcoming with information being given about what was going on with Emma at the time that she disappeared, rather than going on what mom hopes is the worst case scenario, that she's lost or has amnesia or doesn't know who she is and they just need to find her. And I really hope I'm not coming off as being harsh on parents and family. That's not really my intention. We all look at things through our own lens, and I'm the one that tends to look towards the family and what information they're providing versus what is being uncovered during the ensuing investigation. The worst for me was Maura Murray's case, for sure. It's sad, and looking back to think that the investigation could have been sabotaged from the beginning because they could only work with what the family was giving them. And if they weren't sharing the full truth about what was going on, could that be part of the reason why we're all sitting here years later wondering what became of these missing souls? It's heartbreaking. Anyway, sidetracking as usual, let's get back to my story here. Mandy's family was honest and sincere when they shared the troubling things going on in her life at the time leading up to her having gone missing, and they openly entertained the possibility that she may have done harm to herself, which could not have been easy to do, but they understood it wasn't going to do anyone any good to not tell investigators everything that they knew. Now, of course, they had a strong motive to do so in being honest with investigators and the media, considering that the suspicions would start swirling around Mandy's own brother. Now, the family didn't shy away from recognizing the fact that Aaron's actions were questionable at best at the onset of the investigation. His unwillingness to report Mandy missing, being uncooperative with police, things like that. I mean, how awful of a position would Deborah have found herself in? This could not be easy, and I could not even imagine what she must have been thinking and what this must have been like for her. Her daughter is missing, and her son is acting like this. Deborah will continually say that she just doesn't know. She doesn't know. She's not telling us, no, there's no way he'd harm his sister. That's impossible. He loved her and cared about her. Nope. Not a chance, never. No dreamers, Deborah would never say that. Not even from the beginning. But they did say, you know, look, Mandy had bouts of depression. She struggled with addiction, alcohol for sure, possibly even drugs. Though mom could not be certain, it was something Deborah never really saw. At the time Mandy disappeared, she was taking antabuse, which is something that causes a person to become very sick if they ingest even a small amount of alcohol. So we know that Mandy was trying to work around a drinking problem. It was reported by the family that they were unaware of any previous attempts at suicide in Mandy's background, but they do know that she struggled with depression at various times in her life, and it was something that she had in common with her dad. At the time Mandy went missing, two years had passed since her father passed away, but Mandy was still very much grieving his loss. And according to the Charlie Project, 
even up to the days prior to her disappearance, she was struggling with it, possibly even experiencing a mental breakdown. And because of Mandy's potential state of mind at the time she vanished, there was a concern about her safety and that she might have done harm to herself. Even though things did seem to be getting better with Mandy, you know, she was getting ready for that move. She was going to head to New York to live with her new boyfriend, and it appeared she was ready to move onward and upward from all the things that were troubling her. She had gone through some really tough things not too long before she disappeared. It's not completely clear what her financial situation was like. Her mom said that she had some money, though, through financial aid from school. She may have had some money saved, but Mandy did end up taking on a job as a cocktail waitress at a nearby lounge. And working in that environment, friends and coworkers said that the late nights working and serving drinks often led to late night parties that she would be invited to after work, which would likely not even start until after closing time. I can't be sure, but that could have been after two in the morning. Those close to Mandy at the time, particularly those who worked with her, said it was happening more frequently. Her best friend Melinda said they even fought about it because she could see that her friend was spiraling and drinking to excess, which probably meant Mandy stopped taking the antabuse in order to be able to party and drink. Then there had been an occasion while Mandy was still living with Melinda when Mandy confided in her that she had been sexually assaulted following her shift at work that night. Mandy did not report this assault to police. While we can't know for sure why she chose not to, we can probably guess it could have been out of embarrassment or shame. Or maybe she didn't want her family finding out. Or maybe she felt as though that she might have been blamed or maybe she mistakenly felt as though she was to blame because she drank so much. Whatever the case was, she kept it to herself, only telling her best friend. I don't even know if she shared that with her mom, because her mom may have encouraged her to go to the police and she didn't want to. She leaned heavily on Melinda for support in dealing with that, and of course Melinda did what she could to help her friend with the trauma. To Melinda, the sexual assault seemed to have a very deep and profound effect on her. That, along with her continuing to have difficulty coping with her father's passing, it had only been two years, and according to mom, he died just before Christmas, so it made the holiday season especially hard on Mandy. And no matter how much Mandy may have seemed to have been going for herself, intelligence, beauty, a fantastic new relationship, none of that would matter if depression, mental illness, addiction, and not to mention the trauma of sexual assault were all weighing down on Mandy. Clearly, she was broken inside, and that could have played a role in her going missing. And the family very much understood and recognized that, and they never ruled it out, which isn't easy, and it's heartbreaking, and I admire them for choosing to confront it rather than deny it. And of course, there's always the hope that Mandy was somewhere in the world still alive. They just needed to find her. But it's going on 12 years now since she was last seen. So I don't know how much hope they still have, if any. 
After a week had passed since the last time Mandy had been seen, and from what law enforcement were finding out through their investigation, they were starting to lean towards Mandy having met with foul play. Finding the car abandoned, her belongings inside the car, and not to mention the actions of her brother Aaron. There's more to that that we'll get into in a little bit, but all of these things were causing investigators to think that Mandy may not be a missing person, but rather a homicide victim. Deborah and one of her sons, Cody, were finally able to pack up and fly out to California to join in the search effort. From what I understood, Deborah had been faced with some financial struggles, so with the help of some of her friends in the community, they pulled together to help get them out to California. And once they got here, they hit the streets immediately, doing anything and everything that they could to try and track down Mandy's last known locations. By December 4th, 2007, nine days had passed since Mandy disappeared. They converged on the area surrounding where Mandy's car was found abandoned. And mom, Deborah, was like, okay, let's do this. Mandy is somewhere near this location. We are going to find her. Anything other than that is not an option. Deborah was so certain that she would find Mandy that she was ready to bring her food and water and a warm blanket because winter was approaching. Deborah's optimism was astounding at the onset of the search. She described the mood getting there and seeing where her daughter's car was as an exhilarating moment. Mandy's best friend Melinda joined the search too, but the experience for her wasn't the same levels of enthusiasm as Mandy's mom because her friend being missing brought about feelings of dread. Not knowing where she was felt awful and thinking about looking for her and what are they going to find? Because I don't think Melinda thought that they were looking for an alive Mandy. If Mandy was somewhere around this ravine, they were probably going to be looking for a body. Deborah and her son scoured the areas surrounding the ravine, yelling and calling out for Mandy, hoping that she would be down there somewhere, maybe trapped or injured, but still able to possibly hear them and call out for help. They spent countless hours looking and talking to people and putting up missing persons flyers. And it was then they met a man who resided in the area. And he piqued their interest because this man did something kind of peculiar. He frequently walked along the trails near the ravine and he saw the family putting flyers up and he came over to speak to them. He asked about the flyers and what was going on and they explained that their sister and daughter, well, she went missing a little more than a week earlier and that they're searching the area because her car was found near the ravine, which is why they're scouring these areas. This man then told Deborah and Cody that he has a habit of taking notes about the things that happen in and around the community, that he kept a journal with him, and the reason he did this was because he suffered from short-term memory loss. So he keeps notes on everything so he can remember where and when he sees things. And it just so happened that he did see Mandy's car parked in the strange location and wrote it down. He opened up his journal and he had taken detailed notes of where it was parked and what her car looked like. Now at first, 
red flags are going up everywhere. Like this is really weird. Who does this? And could he know more than he's letting on? Could he possibly have something to do with what happened to Mandy? Deborah and Cody, they are naturally suspicious. You know, they don't know what to think. But before long, they come to the conclusion that the man really does have some helpful information. So what he is able to tell them gives them a little bit more insight when it comes to the timeline that they are looking at. According to his notes, he saw the car at 3 p.m. on Sunday afternoon. So this narrows the timeline as to what happened to Mandy having occurred sometime between 10.30 that morning around the time she left the apartment and the time she got on the phone with her boyfriend, John, which was about 10.45, and the time that this man was able to observe her abandoned car parked next to the ravine, which was 3 p.m. This gave the family a glimmer of hope that she was still someplace in the area. But you know, nine days had already passed. Where could she have possibly gone in that time? In the meantime, they also asked Aaron, Mandy's brother slash roommate at the time, to take them to the apartment. They needed to see for themselves. They needed to search the place, seeing as he hadn't allowed police to go there. They wanted to take a look. When Deborah and Cody arrived, they found the place to be a mess, which is the opposite of the way they knew Mandy to keep her place. They checked the whole building, looking for anything. They went down into the basement. They looked in the storage areas, just any place they could think of, and they still came up empty-handed, as they did inside the apartment. Just nothing. No answers. So with all these leads going nowhere, investigators turned their sights towards the last known person to see Mandy, her brother, Aaron. And because he admitted they had had a fight, and for her to have never been seen alive again, they started taking a hard look at him. And this, of course, is very painful and difficult for Deborah. For investigators, they've stated publicly, when it comes to cooperation, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being most cooperative, Aaron was a zero. And that's harsh especially for the family who are kind of feeling the same way. They don't want to. They just don't know what to think. When a detective showed up at Aaron and Mandy's door two days after she went missing, after mom had filed the missing persons report, he refused to let the detective in. With the sister missing and his unwillingness to be helpful, law enforcement found this to be alarming as they would think her brother would be beside himself with worry, wanting to do whatever he could to assist the investigation. Even if he had things that he didn't want the police to see inside the apartment, finding his sister should have overrode that. But it didn't. And all of this had Deborah really upset, and even more desperate to try and figure out what the heck was going on with everything especially where her daughter was and what happened to her. Deborah told investigators everything and anything that she knew about what was going on with Mandy, and she shared with them the fact that she and Aaron had gotten into a fight. So you know detectives are going to want to know more about that. And they actually did find out more about that, 
perhaps even more than Deborah had known. Because when Aaron refused to allow them to search the apartment, they decided to go door to door and talk to neighbors who may have seen or heard anything unusual around 10.30 on Sunday morning. Which, they could get lucky because oftentimes people are home at that time. It was a few days after Thanksgiving holiday too. And it's pretty quiet in the mornings. An argument is likely to catch somebody's attention. Investigators did indeed find a number of neighbors who not only heard but saw the confrontation between Mandy and Aaron take place outside their apartment. And it seemed like it was an argument that began around 8 o'clock in the morning and carried on again and off again over the course of two and a half hours with possibly that one break when they went to the ATM, perhaps to check the balance in the account. Neighbors were able to overhear that the argument was pertaining to a disagreement over money. They heard something along the lines of her having to take care of him and that he was taking money from her. One of the neighbors also said that the way Aaron was standing over Mandy, arguing with her, that she appeared to be cornered. No one said that he shoved her or anything physical happened, but the interaction had a definite aggressive feel to it. The argument ended when one of the witnesses saw Mandy make that fake-out move to get around Aaron and ran into the apartment. He followed her and both of them made their way inside. After that, nothing more was heard in the way of yelling or arguing. Now the reason why investigators found all of this troubling is because it really doesn't line up with the way Aaron described the argument to police or to his mom. Because she was never seen again, and it wasn't like Mandy was a reclusive person, she talked to the neighbors in the apartment complex. She would engage with them when she came and went, and the neighbors were pretty well aware of the goings-on around the complex, and none of them ever reported seeing Mandy again. Their older brother Cody drilled Aaron too. What do you know? What's going on? But all Aaron ever said was the same thing he had been saying. They had this argument. He went into the shower. She told him through the door that she was leaving to run errands, and she never came back. But as I mentioned earlier, there was proof that Aaron was not the last known person to speak to her. He was the last person to see her, but she did get on the phone with her boyfriend around 10.45 in the morning after she had left the apartment for those errands. According to John, she called him that Sunday morning and told him that she was mad at her brother. So, she did leave the apartment, she did drive somewhere, and she did talk about the argument she had. So this is a fact that pretty much saved Aaron from being definitively named as a person of interest in having anything to do with Mandy's disappearance, at least to the point where they had been seen having some sort of heated argument. Whatever happened to Mandy didn't happen after the two of them darted back into their apartment. But even so, investigators would not let up on Aaron. Anyway, in the middle of the conversation, that call between Mandy and her boyfriend John was lost. He told investigators that he tried several times to call her back but was never able to reconnect with her again. Then, according to phone records, at 11.20 a.m., Mandy's phone was either turned off or her battery died 
as it stopped pinging off cell towers everywhere. So knowing that Mandy was not at the apartment when her phone went dead a little more than a half hour after she called John, Deborah feels somewhat reassured that something happened to Mandy elsewhere, not at the apartment, and not because of anything Aaron did. Next, investigators took a look at the activity on Mandy's bank account. They have said what normally happens when a person goes missing is that all bank activity ceases. This was not the case here with Mandy's bank account. When they pulled up her records, they found that there was activity. And this gave them a bit of hope that maybe she was still around and more importantly, still alive. They found that both purchases and withdrawals were being made on the day Mandy went missing. In fact, one purchase was made at 11.28 a.m., only three blocks away from their apartment, and it was made using her ATM card. And then another purchase was made at 11.51 a.m., approximately five blocks away from where Mandy's car was ultimately found abandoned. And what gave investigators and Mandy's family even more hope that she was okay was the fact that there continued to be bank activity the day after she was last seen on Monday, November 26th. But when they got a chance to look at the bank surveillance video images, it wasn't Mandy they saw pulling money out of the account. It was Aaron. Now this information does not lead investigators to anything that might help find Mandy, but it gives them more reasons to be suspicious of Aaron. You know and I know, this is definitely not the first time we've seen people mess with missing persons' finances following their disappearance. It's a big motive in many, many cases, especially when the person whose money is being taken winds up being found dead. You follow the money, right? Well, this was Mandy's brother, and even mom said that she knew Mandy had allowed Aaron to use her ATM card in the past. And that isn't unusual, at least I don't think it is. I don't have brothers and sisters, but I'm pretty sure if I did, I'd allow it. I let my daughter use my ATM card from time to time. But would Mandy have been okay with it? Especially in the recent days and weeks when she was discovering Aaron was taking money without her permission? Not so sure she'd be so loose with her ATM card, right? And then... Him having gone and made purchases and withdrawals so freely following the last time he saw her. That's weird too. They had just had an argument about that very subject, didn't they? She was mad because he was taking money and what she found out he was doing was writing checks on her account while she was away in New York. If she had just come to know this information, would she have just handed over her ATM card and been like, here you go, have at it? I kind of think not. And then I wonder how it was he came to be in possession of the card at that particular time to begin with. She said she was going to run errands. She took her wallet with her and her ID card was in there. But Aaron had her ATM card. So how does he have it? Did she know that he had it? Maybe she really wasn't thinking about her ATM card at the moment because it doesn't seem like she really left to run errands. 
she left to call John to talk to him in private to complain about her brother. She wasn't necessarily going to need to use her card and maybe she never really even noticed. But then didn't Aaron seem awfully comfortable going around making purchases right after he got into this big fight with his sister over this very thing, him taking her money? I mean, he did not seem to have any problem or worry about her getting more mad at him about going on the spending spree. So why? Was he that upset that he didn't care? Maybe he just wanted to get high and not think about it anymore. Does it necessarily mean that he knew Mandy would not be coming back so he was free to do whatever he wanted? But how would he know unless he had something to do with it? And how would that have been possible? I don't think he had a car. How would he have known where she went? There's just so many questions. What the heck happened to Mandy in between the time the call with John dropped sometime after 1045 to the time her phone went completely offline at 1120? The commencement of Aaron's free-for-all with her ATM card began at 1128 and then her car being spotted abandoned by short-term memory guy at 3 p.m. It's such a narrow window of time for all of these events to have taken place. In Dreamers, he drained her account, totally wiped it out within a day of her last being seen. Investigators also discovered the checks that he had been forging to himself as well. It was clear that the signature on those checks written to him were not hers. And those checks amounted to thousands of dollars that he took by way of forged checks. And this just simply doesn't do him any favors when it comes to his credibility with law enforcement or with his family. According to their brother Cody, the checks that Aaron had written to himself amounted to somewhere around six to $7,000, which is an incredible amount of money to be taking from his own sister especially if he was using the money to support a drug habit. That is like so much money. His own brother said considering the drugs that Aaron was using, someone with a problem like that would steal from pretty much anyone, even family. Law enforcement said that Aaron's drug of choice was heroin, and that, we all know, is a very, very addictive drug. And it's not unheard of for people to do things they normally wouldn't do in order to get their hands on the drugs. Aaron insisted to police that he had nothing to do with Mandy's disappearance, but he still would not allow them to enter the apartment. Complicating matters even more, Mandy had already given notice of her intent to move and the landlord had rented the apartment to new tenants. So in the middle of all of this mess, mom and brother also have to start packing up Mandy's things. It took them a matter of a few days, trying to get as much as they could out of there, trying to decide what to keep and what not to keep, trying to figure out what Mandy would have wanted. It was a very sinking feeling for everyone. Without any more that they could do from that point, Deborah and Cody had to leave California behind. Her best friend Melinda had to get back to her life. Everyone feeling incredibly defeated and discouraged that they were unable to find any answers to any of their questions. As a matter of fact, they left even more confused and saddened and heartbroken than before. 
Three weeks after Mandy was last seen, her case was elevated from a missing persons to a homicide investigation. And because of all the circumstantial evidence, which included the uncooperativeness of Aaron, the fight that he had had with Mandy, his evasiveness, his unwillingness to report her missing, refusing to allow investigators to search their apartment, the check forgeries, and using her ATM card after her disappearance, all of it was pointing to him as being the one responsible for her disappearance. It is not unusual for investigators to look at people closely involved with the victims when considering who may be a person of interest. But what is unusual is for there to be violence, potentially homicidal violence between siblings. And investigators do have lingering doubts that a brother would actually do harm to his own sister. But they can't look away from all the things pointing at Aaron in this case. And with that, homicide detectives brought Aaron down to the police station for an interrogation. And they made sure that he understood that he was in the homicide division and that they were looking at this as being a potential homicide. But he really didn't seem fazed by it. He clearly wasn't worried, but he really wasn't much of anything other than making it abundantly clear that he had no desire to be there. He did not want to cooperate again, nor did he really express very much in the way of emotion, fear, concern, or otherwise. Investigators looked at his disinterest in Mandy's disappearance as an unusual reaction for a missing loved one. But one thing does start to come into focus for investigators when talking to Aaron is that Mandy had also gotten in over her head with the drinking and drug use as well. And they seemed to believe that the company that Mandy was keeping were people that she was introduced to through Aaron. Though I'm not sure how forthcoming Aaron was about all of that or if they found out this information in talking to others in their circle of friends and acquaintances, though Aaron never implicated himself in Mandy's disappearance. They did notice that he was very measured and careful with the answers that he provided as to what he was doing, the money that he was taking, what the argument was about. He was basically defending himself and making up excuses for everything that happened. This interview went on for nine hours, most of which Aaron was described as hostile and deceitful. And then finally, he had said he'd had enough and he wanted to leave. According to Mandy's brother Cody, he knew Aaron had been addicted to drugs for quite some time, and he believed Mandy had intentions of helping him, but ended up falling into her own addiction struggles. Her best friend Melinda believed that the break Mandy was taking from her graduate studies was more than a break. It was her dropping out due to her inability to continue in the program because of her battles with addiction. On Friday, December 14, 2007, detectives decided that they had had enough trying to talk Aaron into being cooperative, so they went to court to get a search warrant for the apartment, which they were able to secure based on the information they presented to the judge. They had the probable cause. But by the time they got there to conduct the search, all of Mandy's stuff had been packed up and taken out of the apartment by her mom and her brother. Aaron was no longer living there either. He had moved in with friends and new residents had already moved in. 
but included in the search was the application of chemicals that react when they come into contact with biological materials. And what they found was in two areas of the apartment that it appeared as though some sort of event took place where biological material had been dispersed but cleaned up, but the cleanup wasn't very thorough. What this biological substance they detected was, they did not elaborate on that. But it led them to believe something along the lines of possible foul play took place inside the apartment. Next, the crime scene investigators took a closer look into Mandy's car. It had been searched previously, but nothing immediately stood out that indicated anything that had happened. So they went back again to look, and it was still sitting in the impound yard. And they again applied the chemicals to react to biological materials, and they found what they believed to be the same thing inside the car that they found in the apartment which led them to surmise that it was likely a violent event that took place in the apartment and the car was used to transport the body, or there was a violent event that took place inside the car. So lining up all the circumstantial evidence that we have already mentioned, along with the biological evidence found inside their apartment and in the car, Oakland detectives, despite not knowing where Mandy was or where her body may be, arrived at the conclusion that they believed Mandy was no longer alive, that she was a victim of homicide, and that it was a homicide committed at the hands of her brother, Aaron. They went to the district attorney to present their case to see if they would be able to convince him to file the charges. They wanted to secure a warrant to arrest Aaron for the murder of his sister. But the DA disagreed. He did not believe that the evidence against Aaron was strong enough to charge him. They weren't even sure if she was actually dead. He didn't believe the biological evidence was sufficient. And the fact that both Mandy and Aaron associated with shady characters, any of which could have had a hand in her disappearance, all of this led the DA to decide not to file charges. And I tend to agree that there isn't enough evidence. As much as Aaron has made himself seem so guilty with all of his actions, that timeline of Mandy leaving the apartment around 10.30 and making that phone call to her boyfriend at 10.45, that call dropping and him not being able to get back in touch with her, her phone being dead or turned off by 11.20 and then her car being seen by 3 p.m. in that place that was abandoned, it does not seem possible for Aaron to have done something to her. And it all really hinges on that phone call that she made complaining about Aaron to John. If she had not made that call, I'm certain Aaron would have been charged. But then again, Aaron started using Mandy's ATM card literally minutes after her phone went offline and literally blocks from where they lived and where the car was found. Is it possible that he tracked her down and somehow caused her phone call to end caused her car to be abandoned, caused her to never be seen again, and without any inhibitions, began spending all the money that she had left? And would he have been capable of doing all of this, knowing that he had likely been using heroin and lots of it in recent days? I don't know. It's one of the biggest mysteries of this whole case. He seems so guilty at the same time, it seems so impossible. He continued to insist that he had nothing to do with it, 
and eventually he moved out of state. And Mandy's file would end up relegated to Oakland's cold case unit. As nothing new led the investigation anywhere once the DA declined to file charges. Mandy's family and friends have chosen to give Aaron the benefit of the doubt, for the most part, though the ordeal has driven a wedge between Aaron and the rest of his family. Mandy's best friend, Melinda, didn't think that Aaron would do anything to hurt Mandy, but she does suspect that he might have more information as to who did and is refusing to say anything out of perhaps fear. The fact that Deborah found herself caught in the middle of this impossible place where not only is she shattered over the loss of Mandy, but to be faced with the possibility that Aaron may be responsible for it was not lost on detectives at all, nor is it lost on any of us. So thankfully, investigators did what they could to tread carefully, to have as much respect for Deborah as they possibly could but needing to work through their strong belief that her son was her daughter's killer. At the same time, Deborah was afraid that the investigation at the onset of the case focused in on Aaron so much so that they didn't look anywhere else, which may have caused other leads to be forever lost. The worst thing, besides losing Mandy, would be to see her son arrested and charged with having caused Mandy harm when she believes or wanted to believe that he had nothing to do with it. It's just something she simply can't imagine having to go there. And to this day, Mandy's mom and all of her loved ones continue to live in this limbo of just not knowing. Alicia Amanda Stokes today would be 44 years old turning 45 in August. She went missing when she was 33. At the time, she was approximately 5 foot 3 or 1.6 meters tall and weighed about 120 pounds or 54 kilograms. She is white with brown hair, which also had some blonde highlights and green eyes. She had pierced ears and a pierced navel, a scar on her forearm, a tattoo on her wrist, and a birthmark on her thigh. The last thing she was known to be wearing were running pants or athletic-style clothing, but no further information is available as to other articles of clothing or jewelry. Anyone with any information regarding the disappearance of Mandy Stokes may contact the Oakland Police Department at area code 510-238-3641. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of California Dreaming. Our hearts go out to Mandy's mom and all of her friends and family who loved and cared for her. Until next time, sweet dreams.